Hey, what's up, everyone? It is C.W. Hall. I'm pleased to be with you again on the Medical Association of Georgia's Top Docs radio show. I'm your host, and we've been going for, we were just trying to figure it out now, around 105, 106 episodes here with over 450,000 views, with over 8,000 members in every specialty and practice setting. Medical Association of Georgia is the leading voice for physicians in Georgia, and we've talked about many uh, important subjects over time. And if you've not done so already get out to mag.org for details on the Medical Association of Georgia and how to join mag if you're a physician in Georgia. And I'm so pleased that we've been viewed from every state in the country. Over 80, 80 countries around the world have checked us out. So thank you very much for making us a part of your day today. We're going to be talking about something. We're here in the Atlanta area. Um, and and so you can't really step outside in your daily life without noticing this group of people, um, homeless folks and a class of people that I really hadn't thought about uh, previously, and those are folks that have some access to housing, um, but it, it fluctuates all the time, and they're, they're called housing insecure. I'd like to uh, introduce my guest today, Dr. Mohit Agarwal. He's a transitional year resident at the Gwinnett Medical Center. He will begin a residency in radiation oncology at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio in the next several weeks. Congratulations. Thank you. He is a member of the Medical Association of Georgia's Medical Reserve Corps, as am I an honorary member, proud to say. And he graduated from the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University in 2018. Thanks for sitting in with me today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to kind of look into the topic a little bit before we started today and, and because I hadn't heard the term housing insecure before. Um, I'm interested in the distinction, why that's important, and just, I mean, how big of a problem are we really talking well, thank, I first just want to say thank you to having me, and thank you to the Medical Association of Georgia. Um, so part of our rotation through transitional year, we get to work for one month with Medical Association of Georgia, and this is the topic we talked about. So I just want to thank uh, Mr. Palmasano. He helped me get set up with a lot of people, so I just want to <laughs> throw that out there. But uh, like you're saying, the homeless, homeless, people suffering from homelessness and housing insecure, it's important to make that distinction and maybe even include the housing insecure into the homelessness population. Right. So what does that really mean? Um, so when I first started this project, I kind of thought, like, take a, close your eyes, think of a picture of homelessness, someone suffering from homelessness. You think of the person on the bridge panhandling. Yes. You don't think about those that are elderly, women, children, or people with a lot of chronic comorbidities. Mm. And then it's important to go further than that, that, you know, if I ask you, like, oh, like, where are you living? And you give me a, an address. Okay, great. I'm crashing on a friend's couch, or mm-hmm. I'm staying in a long-term extended motel. And a lot of times those addresses are given in the ER, that, oh, I'm, this is my address. And it's not looked up that that's a right extended stay motel or hotel, and I'm there for six weeks. But we kind of just take that at face value, like, oh, they have an address. Or they give me an address that's not an extended stay motel, and comes to find out later they're staying with six to nine people in that same house, and they can't get home health services because they don't want anybody else coming to the house. So that's kind of like where they're just couch surfing or they're just, I'm just crashing in a friend's place. I'm really okay, sir, but I'm just, you know, I just need a place to stay for a couple days. And I guess where that comes into play and its importance, and you can expand on it for sure, but one, you're going to, your risk of exposure for whatever, you know, think of any kind of contagious, whether it's GI, respiratory, anything else. Tuberculosis even. Like, you know, we think we've taken care of that, but hepatitis. Hepatitis. Like, those kind of things are really easily, like, First off, if you're on the streets, it's already easy to get, especially in the wintertime or anything like that. Like You get colds from people. Right. You get exposure to things, you get exposure to the elements. And then when you're hopping between different places or in a extended motel or a friend's place or something like that just for a couple of days even, you're exposing other people as well. 
So that's how epidemics can start and so on. But just the fact that you don't have stable housing already put, sets you up for illnesses that you didn't think about or like exacerbations of your current illnesses. Mm-hmm. And I and I guess those people, like you say, um, may not get access to some resources that were otherwise available to them exactly that might have helped them if i guess this group was obviously going they're they're only going to be seen by us in an acute emergency trauma uh collapse of whatever kind exactly in so the like ER. you think about it family so we actually i just got done with an inpatient service in duluth we work in duluth and lawrenceville and we admitted a patient um, the ER had said that the, this is the ad, like the, the administration said this is the address he's staying at. So when I do my uh, history and physical, I do a little more questioning, and I said, oh, and especially with this topic in mind, because I just researched it, where are you staying? Are you living with anybody? What are your activities of daily living? Do you currently work? What do you, or did you what did you used to do for work? It comes out that he is living with his son's friend, and there are six to nine people there. They can't get home health services because they don't want anybody else coming. The son's friend who owns the place doesn't want anybody else coming there. And so then that's a huge barrier. That's important for discharge planning. Like, okay, right. what services can you get? Where can you go to get those services then? Do you have transportation? And just those simple questions, even though it didn't take long to ask and things like that, but they don't always get asked. A lot of times we get trained to just ask about social history, alcohol, drugs, smoking, mm-hmm. herbal drugs. Mm-hmm. And we kind of take that at face value and don't really, and we see the chart says address. And we don't look up the address, see if it's an extended stay motel. And so by just doing a little bit of digging, just a few minutes, you can save a lot of time, you can save emissions, you can think about what resources does this patient need at the beginning and get that started instead of having to wait at the end to find out and then their stay extends by a couple of days because you're trying to figure out services they can get to or transportation to get them to a clinic or something like that. Well, now that we're paying attention to kind of different groups within the group, if you will. When I see them, I don't know which they fall into. Um, I, I'll be interested in, in getting to what are some resources available to those folks. And we we're just now talking about, I get to you through the ER. So my condition is going to be something dramatic. They're going to have to do some degree, or you know, it might be behavioral medicine, which is another class in and of itself, but it's still an ER visit. Yeah. I would imagine that means that obviously on a per capita basis, these are pretty expensive people. Exactly. So um, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services did a study back in October of or November of 2017. And they looked at people who were using resources. They looked at four states using medical respirator or recuperative care units, which we'll talk about that in a moment. And they saw that total savings about $4 million for just four states. That's not total cost. That's savings. So there's another study conducted back in uh, a few years ago, and they looked at two hospitals, one in Connecticut, one in Florida. And we'll just focus on the floor to want to make it simple. One housing insecure patient, one hospitalization, cost $18,300 with net loss of $8,800. So after partial reimbursement, they were still losing $8,800. So let's just round that up to $20,000 for total hospital cost and $9,000 for loss for one hospitalization for one patient. And then let's move that on to the fact that these a lot of times these patients don't only have one hospitalization. <laughs> They're focused on taking care of their families, finding a place to stay, food. They don't get their medications a lot of times. Even if you try to get them the $4 list or try to get them something from the hospital, they aren't able to afford that as an outpatient or they are not able to follow up and get to the Walmart to get to the $4 list. So let's just estimate five visits into the hospital a year, which is probably at least, if not undercutting, how often they do come to the hospital. And that's including ER visits and things. That's a hundred that five times twenty that's a hundred thousand dollars for one patient for one year. 
with a net loss of $45,000. So almost half of that isn't even reimbursed. Now, is that, I guess that's affecting the hospital's sheet. That, that's who's paying that, right? Yeah, and then Basically. also it's going to come to taxes, and it's also going to come out mm. of your bill, too. Mm. So moving on to how does this affect me or my loved ones? Hospital-associated health care is so high because they find someone who is able to afford this or they have good insurance, and you know right. that, warm, black, that, that warm blanket costs $120 for a reason because their hospital is trying to recoup some money. Mm-hmm. And it's understandable why it's so high. But it's you know it's because of certain populations I'm able to pay or get reimbursed or like even get their health care to keep them out of the hospital. So how does this affect us? Higher health care costs, waiting lines. Let's say a patient who has chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. They aren't going to get their inhalers. They're not worried about their inhaler right now. They're worried about their family. They're worried about where they're staying or so on and so forth. They go to the hospital. Let's say a loved one or a family member or just a friend, you know, they had their first exacerbation in two years. Let's say they ran out of their inhaler, they're just not being controlled anymore. First time in two years, they had to go to the ER and go to the, go to the hospital. They get there at the same time, or the housing and secure patient gets there just a little earlier. They get seen first, so it's a five to ten minute delay. These patients, like COPD exacerbations get seen pretty quickly because those right. serious conditions. Five, ten minute delay to see the physician or MP or PA, whoever you're seeing. And then a lot of times, if they're not able to be controlled in the ER, they get admitted. So then that's another bed being taken, and that's delaying your loved one or family member's care as well. And there's, I'm, not, I'm not putting blame on any housing. Sure. I'm not putting blame on anybody. This but is the, reality. This is, yeah, this is how backup and delays, and you know, we get a lot of times called diversion. The hospital's on diversion. They can't take any more patients. Right. Or they're right. red level, or they're, uh, they just can't take, they have, they have a certain percentage of beds that are for traumas only. Mm-hmm. And so that's how hospitals get filled up, and that's how delays occur, and that's how delays in healthcare occur to everybody. When I mean clearly, when you think about how does this affect you know the healthcare system and all, yeah, that was a great discussion uh, about why is it important and and the, and the notion of I thought about it on my way here. They're 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 not a stranger, so whatever happens to them happens to them. It's literally what happens to them also uh, involves us in in indirect ways. Um, so to see how it it's sort of like traffic you do something wrong in traffic and traffic like this and boom uh, anything you can do to eliminate a choke point for the truly critically ill is obviously something you want to do and it, it must surely put a pretty good strain on the clinicians um, dealing with the, just like in traffic in the ER when uh, the backup begins to happen and I don't feel good at all and, and maybe I'm really Injured or uh, pretty sick, I don't. I'm probably going to get a little angry, you know. So the experience for you as a physician who's trying to work with this, obviously the impacts are are great and are worth tackling. I yes, guess is the long winded point for the and the overall the, the importance of it is patient care, right? And patient care suffers when there's backups or when there's delays, and that's you know taking away costs, all that stuff. That's what we're in this business for, is to take mm. care of patients. And when patients are unhappy or they're not getting their care, then what are we doing? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm pleased to hear that it sounds like there's some proaction being taken Yes. Um, to try to head this off a little bit. Uh, talk about you know, where you're going now as a physician when you're presented with this patient. It sounds like you're taking a little different approach in what you want to know. Um, therefore, you might be able to identify some things. Talk about when I'm getting ready to send you out of here. What, what are you doing? So before even we even get to that part, I'm trying to think about, I'm admitting you, let's talk about, let me think about planning ahead. 
I'm going to think about a couple of days ahead. Like, okay, I expect the turnaround for this CPD exacerbation within a couple of days. So let's go ahead and get stuff plan- started. And the way that you start things is by asking a few questions. And as an intern, we um, the rules are you take ten- care of ten patients. All right. So let's say I'm taking care of ten patients. That's the maximum that an, a first year resident can take care of um, in internal medicine. And so. You know, it takes three or four minutes to ask these questions, but ask extra questions besides just the alcohol, right. drug abuse, or um, herbal medications, or smoking history. Just say, where are you living? What are your normal activities of daily living? Who do you live with, or do you live by yourself? Are you able to take care of yourself? And what do you do for work, or what did you used to do for work? These questions, yeah, they take up a few minutes, five minutes of your time. Especially if I say, yeah. To a problem. Yeah, and like you're going to you take and, care of yourself. No, you're, you're going to investigate further. So let's say five to ten minutes, and so it's you know hundred minutes for these ten patients, and a lot, not every single patient is going to have an issue. Sure, but it's better than having them readmitted five times in a year because you didn't follow up and get like oh they can't get these services outpatient. Right, and that's a longer hospital. Like it's a longer history, a longer physical exam. And you're taking up time that you could have been seeing other patients. So just first forefront, asking more questions, getting more information, and asking the follow-up question, which I know is a lot. We already have a little min- limited time. Mm. We're trying to get work done. After that, figuring out they're going to need some extra resources or they're going to need to go here. You need to involve social workers. And we rely on social workers and coordinate healthcare coordinators extremely um, we have something called rocket rounds at Gwinnett Medical Center where the physician presents his patients or her, presents his or her patients and uh, the social worker, physical therapy, um, occupational therapy, nutrition, everyone's kind of there. And we talk about patients individually and say like, oh, this patient's going to need oxygen when they get home, or they're going to need a wheelchair, or they're going to need outpatient physical therapy, or they're going to need inpatient rehab or social work um, or nursing home, so on and so forth. And I don't know how to set that up. That's a lot of social work <laughs> and coordinated health. Like I, have, I know how to... Now, so that person is is somebody capable, a social worker. Exactly. If somebody uh, can do all of that, tie those knots from exactly. this guy to that guy. Like, I know who requires oxygen when they go home, like what the okay. saturations are and stuff like that, but I don't know how to get them their oxygen. That's, that's, you know, that's above my knowledge base of how do I get these resources to them. So we rely heavily on them. On, and a lot of times we just kind of take face value too. That, oh, they, are gonna, they know where they live. Like, I don't need to worry about that. We kind of push that off. The social aspect of medicine, we say, oh, there's a social worker for that, or there's a coordinated healthcare for that. They'll figure out where they live. They'll figure out what access to medicine they have. But let's say there's only one social worker per floor sometimes. So I'm seeing 10 patients. That answered a question I had. You take care of 10. How many does the social worker follow? She's taking care of a floor. How much is a, like 40 to 50 patients on one floor for one person? Imagine how many of these, how many on a, I, obviously it's going to swing, but I mean, what would you say in your anecdotal experience that when you walk through that floor of 48 people, how many are in this group that we're talking about? Either homeless or they don't have reliable, sustainable, constant home? I'd say probably um, just based on the last month when I was on inpatient services, let's say out of those 48 patients, maybe eight about like maybe maybe about eight we're going to need okay extended like more resources so it's similar normal. to your patient load for this i mean they're going to do social work probably on some level for everybody right? yes but yes. but i mean you know usually one per service let's say that so out of my 10 i'm probably gonna need one or two that's going to need some extra resources or some extra things that are in this population yeah and um and that's just and that's just me as an a first-year resident that I'm taking care of 10, but the hospitalists that take care of the 20 to 30, um, and like the resident service takes up to 20 per team. So it's a lot of patients that 
the resident and the attending see, but the social worker is still only one. There's lots of doctors, still only one. Sometimes multiple calls per person. Yeah, and sometimes some hospitals are able to have more social workers per floor. Right. But um, you see this a lot, where there's just one social worker per floor, or one physical therapist, or two physical therapists for the floor, and so on and so forth. And so there's a lot of investing that the hospital needs to do besides just getting physicians or getting machine MRI machines or CT machines and so on and so forth. They need to um, invest more in the social aspects of medicine. Sounds like it. Um, I mean, talk about a choke point. I mean, let's think about that 48-bed floor. They're, they're in better shape when the bed is empty in some situations. And um, so, or at least have a new patient in it. Yeah. Um, which means they're providing that acute care quickly and effectively. But if I'm if I'm trying to uh, let's think about a comorbid patient who came in with you know some pretty big problems and maybe they don't have a home now what? But they've got to have some real you know good home health or transitional you know maybe subacute care exactly. And now this person obviously is not going to have any kind of. Health, health insurance of any type, really, and I would imagine as a low. So, I mean, what do you do in that? There, there's got to be some clinical impasses there, and that that's kind of a funky place for the facility to be in. I can't just send you out. Exactly, and, like, you take risk management involved. Like, let's say I, I do get them out. I'd say, I, like, you know what? This patient's stable for discharge, and we push, let's say, quote, unquote, push them out. They're going to come back because they can't get their meds. They have a lot That's of serious, and they're going to just come right back to the ER and get rehospitalization, and then they're going to have drive up care, cost care, and then yeah, they're, free but, care because you don't them, get paid for that, right? Exactly. But for them, penalized. the important thing is like you're sending out a patient who is going to get could get sick and die. That's the most important. Like you have a patient who is already sick, mm-hmm. and they could potentially get sicker or die. Mm-hmm. And that's the most important part, besides cost and all that. But then you are driving everything else in, up, and like you're going to have them come right back to the hospital. And that's where the cycle occurs, where if we don't have good services on the outbay, if we don't have good shelters or good units where we can send patients out, that's the cycle that we're talking about. They go to, the, they get discharged. A couple weeks later, they come back to the right. ER with an exacerbation of their medical. The, what's the period of the boomerang? When do they come back? So, I mean, just based on my experience, I'd say maybe two weeks to four weeks wow okay and that's you know if you're like like seeing them once a month that's you know that's you're you're doing okay then you know but a lot of times like you'd see patients come back two or three times in the same month and i know now um because i'm having the opportunity in our clinical work where that i do outside of here the, the the notion is turning to prevention um, if I if I pay a lot of attention to you, particularly in that first five or six weeks, four weeks for sure, after you come out, make sure you're taking meds that you need. You very well won't be likely to come back. So it sounds like there are some now innovations where organizations that deliver that kind of acute care, tertiary care, are starting to realize that I've got to have a stratification of my care delivery or have at least a community-based resource of some kind that handles that where I can go for a period of time to make that transition exactly. successful. Talk about that, the recuperative unit. Yes, so recuperative care unit, um, there aren't a lot that are uh, in Georgia. There's two in Georgia. There's um, both Mercy Care. There's City of Refuge um, for women and Gateway Center for men. And I think they have about capacity of 15 to 17 um, patients right now. Don't quote me on that, though. I, I think that's about right, though. And what it is, is it's a safe shelter where a patient can receive medical care after a hospital. They're safe to be discharged, but they 
still need some medical care and they need some help with other resources and things. So they have lots of resources there. They have services for mental health, um, medical transportation, job training. Um, develop. They help you develop self-care skills for your illness. And they have resources for temporary and permanent housing as well. So it's kind of like an all-encompassing unit where like you can get some medical care and like there's a lot of restrictions on like how to get in like you can't be a you can't be on ivs and things like that like you are safe to be discharged from the hospital so you're no longer right that sick you need a spot to stay where you can be reminded to take your pills yeah and and get your medications and so on and get some peripheral checks so a lot of times if a patient goes to the hospital the you get followed with your primary care that we tell you get followed with your primary care within three to five days or within a week so, but a lot of these patients don't have a primary care physician, or primary care physicians that do see this population are overbooked or just over. Like they don't have space to see somebody. They're seeing forty patients a day because they're taking care of patients who aren't able to reimburse them. So they're trying to fill in their space, and that, which is understandable. They're already doing a lot of help to see these patients, but they also need to make sure their clinic stays open. Yeah. So then this is where a recruitive care unit or a medical respite unit is really useful where the patient who is homeless or um, housing insecure can go and get more referrals and get more care and make sure you're taking your medications and so on. The, un- the units or the organizations that you mentioned, they're publicly funded or are they supported by philanthropic organizations what's the story so they operate at a loss um and so they require a lot of donations because they don't get any reimbursements right now okay through this care interesting yeah they don't get any reimbursements for this right now and Mm. so they're they're requiring donations to stay open so they operate at um again i don't remember the number i interviewed um the ceo for mercy care quite a bit some time ago but i'm pretty sure they operate into the hundred thousands if not millions of net loss and they require a lot of donations to stay open yeah what type of what type of humans are providing care in, in those types of spots? So a lot of times um, you can have nurses, LPNs. Um, I think sometimes you can have, I don't know about their specific Donating ones. their time. Yeah, donating their time. and Or like they were... They would get some reimbursement, yeah, from like being there. from Mercy yeah, Care to I got help you. them. Okay. That's where the costs come in. Where like mm-hmm. you have to pay facility members to stay there, um, and so then they are, that's how they're operating at losses. But LPNs, sometimes NPs, sometimes PAs. Um, I mean, the goal would be to try and get physicians involved as well to try, check on them, and maybe we can have more acute patients in those units. But right now, it's like LPNs and nurses that are taking care of these patients. There's clear financial and logistical. Uh, an outcomes-driven uh, value for why I would want a resource like a recuperative unit or space to be available to my patients, very self-serving in numerous ways, some of which are really good. Um, are hospitals starting to see this as a place that's going to protect my emergency room from having to care for patients who need care, but gosh, we don't want to do it in that spot? I think the upfront cost of opening a unit is what's a barrier. And I don't, also don't think that a lot of hospitals know about this, at least in Georgia. Okay. Um, there are some pairings that these two units in Atlanta have with Grady and Emory and things like that. But we had the patient um, previously that I was speaking about in Duluth, um, they don't have a, a unit that I can send a patient to. And they don't have any agreement with these units here, so I couldn't get him here. So... And that was the first, like, you know, the social worker had heard about it, but I don't think the hospital administration really knows about these units. So I think that's a barrier that they don't know. So, and yeah, another reason I was like, talk. awesome. <laughs> um, but then also, 
the upfront cost, if a hospital does know about it, it's expensive to run, but right. I think that they need to look. There's a lot of studies out there and a lot of studies that I looked at that show like how much potential savings they could have. Right. I can I, Let's look at Grady. It's right down the heart of town yeah. where there are numerous shelters. Yes. How many, uh, you know, I'm, there's got to be 4,000 know, or four figures of, of people that fit this group of folks, whether homeless or nearly so, that are just in that Geography, or and and it, gosh, when you think about the catchment area, it's how many? And they actually had a study using the recuperative care unit. It hasn't been published yet, but it's showing how much cost and uh, how much cost savings they have. So hopefully that gets presented yeah. to the Grady board, and maybe they can open up their own unit. But Grady has a lot of resources that they do use um, to help with this population. Um, they're probably more at the forefront than a lot. Of, but a lot of places like. Duluth and Gwinnett, they don't think they have this problem, but just you know, just ten or twenty, which is a maybe lot not more than on that. the severity, perhaps. Yeah, but it's there. And it's it, there, and so they think maybe twenty patients. Like, oh, it's not a big deal, but it's a lot more than twenty. But even if you think about that, twenty patients, that's two million dollars for just one year. If they had five visits at a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, so that's you know, that's again, like we just need. It to, doesn't take long. It doesn't right. take long for, to have potential savings of millions of dollars. Do you see in that group of people that are homeless insecure? Do some of them present with some? degree of medicaid where does medicaid fit into this so medicaid fits into this where um if we could get like a 1115 medicaid waiver and so sometimes they are old enough that they will have medicaid or medicare and things like that and so 1115 medicaid waiver would be really useful for georgia and what that is it's a it's a waiver granted by the secretary of the u.s department of health and human services and what it does is it provides funds for initiatives that are deemed to be um, demonstrative or initiative or uh, experimental or pilot programs. And so what happens is a lot of this care that determined that non-medical care that affects the social determinants of health care, which is an important part of medicine, doesn't get reimbursed currently by Medicaid. And so North Carolina actually just had a 1115 Medicaid waiver introduced last year in October for their new Healthy Opportunities Pilot Program in which they are going to fund research evidence-based non-medical care that are affecting social determinants of health care and health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So now those services can get at least, if not full reimbursement, but partial reimbursement. So RCUs or medical respite care units or providers that provide a lot of services to the housing insecure and homelessness populations, they can get some reimbursements back and keep stay open mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, it may be too early in their existence i don't know but i mean you know as we've been discussing the concept of rcus and 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 this group of patients who are homeless or homeless insecure and their cycle of readmission to the er I really let my mind kind of focus on that component as we talked but i'm i'm curious is it is evidence beginning to emerge? I'm sure we're going to be following it um, about those patients. I mean, the, are the people that are getting through these um, types of resources that recuperative care unit are they showing a decreased cycle period? You know, or an increased period yeah. between readmissions? But are they trending any kind of measurable way? Clinically, that I'm responding, and maybe I'm getting a little better, or maybe I'm compliant. No, that's a, that's a great question, and there are good studies about. It. There's a couple from Chicago, um, couple the ones that I talked about in Florida and Connecticut. They were looking at medical respite care units and things like that. And then the Centers of Medicaid and Medicare Services back in 2015 did a study on this, and they show consensus between two to three day hospital stay decrease. So I'm able to keep your stay. Let's say you get I don't know how much a hospital stay costs per day. Let's say five thousand dollars a day. I'm saving you ten grand by reducing two days. Uh, I'm estimating that five thousand. Sure, sure, number. I get you. Um, 
So there, they did show. I don't think I saw any study that showed less than two days stay. Some showed three days stay. Um, they showed a 38% reduction in ER visits, and then potential savings of, let's say you're operating a net loss of $9,000 like that hospital in Florida. I, I have to look back specifically. I think I have it right here. Yeah, they had. They showed nets by decreasing the ER visits. Um, the hospital in Florida specifically showed a decrease of $900 for just the ER visits, a decrease of savings of $3,000 by reducing a two-day reduction, and then the subsequent hospital stay by decreasing by $5,000. So they saved up to $3,000, almost $9,000. Yeah, so it's uh, obviously something that I hadn't ever, hadn't really given a whole lot of thought to uh, consciously until uh, you popped into the studio today. And, man, I'm glad you did, and I'm sure our guests are going to be as well. Do you have any final thoughts before I let you get back to the rest of your day? Um, so, I mean, important for – I mean, I know a lot of times it's people are set in their ways, but ask the follow-up questions. Ask just a couple questions of what are you able to care for yourself? Where are you staying? Who do you stay with? Who follows up with you? Who's your primary care physician? Just a simple question. Do you have a primary care physician? And do you follow up with anybody? And that's something that physicians can take care of. And then hospitals, just getting more involved in your hospital, saying, hey, what resources do we have around us? Talking with their social workers that you know more. Because I didn't know much about what resources are in Atlanta. I didn't Mm -hmm. know anything about recruitive care units before I did this project. And so in six weeks' time, I learned a lot about this, looked up these studies and things. And so just getting involved with your social worker and asking questions like, what do we have around us? Do we have anything? If not, what can we get? And looking more into that, and then that's how you affect change in your hospital. And so hopefully physicians and social workers get more involved in their hospital and trying to not just get patients out, but also focus on how do we keep patients out, because that's the goal. Do you have any, as you were doing that research project, and uh, thanks for doing that. It was obviously going to have an impact. I mean, did you find some places where you felt like the, re- the, the information was very useful, whether it's how do they do this or just, you know, more, more about the subject? So, yeah, there's a lot of good websites. The National um, Homelessness, Homelessness Council website.org, um, the nhchc.org website has a lot of information on medical respite, how to set up programs, um, what kind of initial cost you're going to have, what places have programs already in the country. Um, Georgia, again, only has those two in Atlanta. And kind of tell you who to contact, things like that, if you want to set something up. Um, I think that's a great resource for a lot of people to start out and see, like, oh, this is what I'm interested in, this is what I want to get more information from, and then going from there. And it just gives you a lot of information about kind of the cycle that we were talking about and what kind of can happen and just puts things in a different perspective for you. So I think that if people want to start somewhere, I think that's a good place to start. Dr. Mohit Agarwal, thank you for being here today. Thank you for I having me. I demand you come back. <laughs> Man, what a what a great show this was today, and I'm so grateful that you brought it to our attention as a topic of discussion. And I'm sure that our folks out there will agree this was a really, really good one. And good enough for you to share. Please do so. Um, you can find the, the Medical Association of Georgia on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Make sure you're following them there. Turn around and click share. When you check out the show today, I can assure you especially if you're one of our clinician viewers, um, you're probably going to be putting some really useful information into the hands of folks that make some of these decisions. Perhaps we can uh, collectively turn the wheel a little bit as it relates to this group. Get to mag.org slash topdocs to check out all of our episodes. They're out there. You can find us across all the, the, the media platforms now. We were talking about Spotify now, iTunes. And uh, I uh, appreciate you all making us a part of your day today. 
make sure we say thank you very much to Alliant Health Solutions. I can't forget them. They're, <laughs> they're a big part of the reasons why they uh, made this show possible along with our partners at the Medical Association of Georgia. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.